Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. With us now is our good friend, Scott Newark, former Alberta prosecutor, vice chair of the Ontario Office of Victims of Crime, also was executive director of the Canadian Police Association. He's a columnist and adjunct professor at Simon Fraser University. And uh, there are a lot of stories for us to get at here, Scott, or you to get at and explain to us your thinking on them. And let's start with uh, the Canadian who traveled to Syria to join ISIS, who has been released from prison even though the parole board assesses Kevin Omar Mohammed as a, quote, high risk to public safety, a story by Stuart Bell and Andrew Russell on Global News. What do you say? Well, um, this really touches a nerve, I think, with a lot of people. Uh, I've heard from a lot of people, like, what the hell is going on here? Why would the parole board release this individual if they think he's a potential high risk to offend? And um, the thing that is, uh, this is not a court decision, so there's not a court registry uh, that we uh, can actually get the specific decision. I actually went on and checked. We have an excellent registry for court decisions, but understandably, because of the nature of the information involved, that's not the case for parole board decisions. But what struck me about this as I was looking at it is, this is, in my opinion, the newest manifestation of something that has been a flaw in our system from the get-go. And that is that this individual was released on uh, what uh, used to be known as mandatory supervision, if you recall. It's now called statutory release at the end of two-thirds of the sentence. And both the Parole Board and Correctional Service of Canada, in my experience, uh, and unfortunately in this case, the minister's office, Minister Goodale's office themselves, try to perpetuate this absolute falsehood. It's nothing short of a lie that says that, oh, well, in Canada, you know, once you hit two-thirds of your sentence, by law you have to be released. That is not true. Under Section 129, Subsection 3 of the Corrections and Conditional Release Act, a person can be held for their full sentence um, if they meet the criteria that this guy clearly did, and that was the language the parole board was using, that in effect they pose a risk of committing a uh, serious uh, violent offense if they are to be released. Now, we made changes. This, This used to be the case it was actually known as the blackmail theory, where the, back, the bad guys would say to the parole board, well, and corrections, geez, if you don't let me out early under supervision, you keep me till the full sentence, then I'll be really dangerous. I remember those days. Yeah, Joe Fredericks. Right. That's what happened. That's why he was released, and he went on and abducted, raped, and murdered a little 11-year-old boy, Christopher Stevenson. Well, we changed the laws back then, and specifically created these new kinds of like parole orders are called preventive reconnaissances. I was very much involved in, in crafting the legislation uh, that allows for these same kinds of orders with conditions that if, and if after the offender serves their full sentence. So in other words, we don't have to say there's, you know, we have no choice in doing this. If the person is sufficiently dangerous, they can be kept. And I'll tell you something, if they meet that criteria, they meet the criteria that would authorize the court to issue one of these orders. Your listeners may be more familiar with the phrase they're known as peace bonds, okay? But guess what? This is Canada, so there's a catch. The parole board does not have the authority to make that decision. They can only make that decision if Correctional Services of Canada refers the guy to the parole board saying, 
we want to uh, keep him for his full sentence. If they don't refer him, as they obviously didn't in this case, the report, the parole board has to release him. That is outrageous. It is. That fact, and I think, frankly, it's, uh, it's even worse in some ways. I'm quoting from, the, from Stewart's story. Public Safety Minister Ralph Goodale's office said Friday that offenders serve the final third of their sentences in the community, which allows for gradual release under careful watch instead of releasing offenders cold turkey at the end of their sentence, which would be far less safe. That is, that person who said that either doesn't know what is going on with the law or is deliberately misleading Canadians because there was a lawful authority for Correctional Service of Canada to initiate a process for the parole board to say, we're going to keep you for your full sentence. And that has frequently been the case with these people who've been convicted of Islamist terrorist offenses because they're so narcissistic, they're so arrogant, that they are uh, inherently not prone to the kind of rehabilitation efforts that generally and properly lead to conditional release. So this is a demonstration, in my opinion, of a fundamental flaw in our correction system and, and you know, potentially equally so, this misleading, deliberate misleading of the public as to what's going on. So then we have the case, and I know this one, uh, this one really made your head explode, where uh, a B.C. court sets free a Calgary man, his name is Sandor Rigo, who very happily admitted to being a drug mule. He was caught while ferrying 27,500 fentanyl pills between Vancouver and Calgary, and the judge had something to say about the RCMP's drug-sniffing dog not being, not alerting enough. So talk about that one. Yes, I hope, uh, as I mentioned yesterday, all your listeners are sitting down when uh, you hear the facts of this. As you described, this is uh, a couple of years ago, and this guy is uh, driving. It's on a highway uh, in British Columbia near Chilliwack, and the RCMP officer pulls him over because he's speeding. So he goes up to the vehicle, and he sees, he opens the the window, and there's an, he's immediately hit with this smell of, you know, uh, air freshener, which seems kind of odd. And the guy behind the wheel is shaking, and there's a whole bunch of um, cell phones on the uh, passenger seat, all of which are potential indicators of uh, drug trafficking. And the guy's got a bunch of tires in the vehicle that he says, oh, well, yeah, you know, I'm, I picked them up in Vancouver, and I'm driving them back to Cal, which doesn't make any sense. And the, the highway itself is a known route for drug traffickers. So the officer says, uh, okay, um, I want to check your vehicle, which he's lawfully entitled to do, calls in a um, uh, drug detection dog unit, which arrives shortly. They put the guy in the back of the RCMP car. The dog goes around and is sniffing the vehicle as it does. And I don't know, I can't tell whether it's from a body camera on the officer or whether it's from a dash cam, but this is actually all recorded. And so the dog is going around, and the drug handler sees the dog stop at one point and do something that in their training means the dog is suggesting there's drugs in here. So they go back, they they tell the guy you're under arrest, they take him back to the detachment, they go and they search the vehicle and the tires, and lo and behold, as you say, they find 27,500 fentanyl pills hidden uh, in the, uh, the vehicle. Okay, and they talk to the guy, and, uh, you know, they give him his rights, although the judge found that they were delayed in doing so. And the guy is very open and very cooperative. And, again, this is all recorded on video. Yeah, he's quite cheerful about it. Yeah, and, and congratulations, again, to the guys from Global News, because they actually got copies of the videos. What a remarkable coincidence. 
Um, and so they charge the guy with, you know, possession of the, uh, the drugs for the purpose of trafficking. So they get to court, and the Superior Court Judge, uh, Michael Brundrett, um, says that uh, he views the video, and in his opinion, the dog really didn't sit down the way that supposedly was the sign of uh, drug detection. And so the officer, even though he honestly believed that the dog was indicating that there were drugs in the vehicle, and, oh yeah, by the way, there were drugs in the vehicle. A lot of them. The judge decided that that uh, constituted an unlawful search under uh, as, and a violation of uh, Section 8 of the Charter, so he excluded the evidence and found the guy not guilty. And the guy congratulates the RCMP on the great work they're doing. Yeah. And by the way, the, just so it's clear, what makes this even more outrageous, it is not automatic under our charter that if, so, if the, uh, there is a breach of the charter that the evidence, i.e. the truth, must be excluded. Okay, The actual wording says that the evidence shall be excluded if it is established that having regard to all the circumstances, the admission of it in the proceedings would bring the administration of justice into disrepute. Don't get me wrong. I think the administration of justice has been brought into disrepute in this case, but it's because of the action of this judge, not the action of the cops. Do you remember we talked... And by the uh, way, let me finish. It also appears that the Federal Prosecution Service has not appealed this decision. Well, get at it. Outrageous. Uh, we talked uh, maybe not 10 years ago, but a few years ago, about a, a guy who had been traveling exactly the speed limit for quite a long period of time, and the police were behind him, and they got suspicious because nobody drives exactly the speed limit, 100K. So they pull him over, and uh, they find there was $300,000 worth of drugs in his car. And for the same reason, and I can't remember the exact circumstance, but for the same reason, the judge decided, okay, we're going to throw all this out. We're going to let the guy go because there was some some minor issue with the way he had been questioned or how he'd been talked to, and the judge decided that his constitutional or his charter rights had been violated. And so off he goes and, uh, you know, to live and travel and traffic another day. This, this one is even more outrageous because this is a judge from on high, pardon the pun, uh, you know, after the fact deciding that his judgment is better than the officer's well, exactly. team, who is a trained expert in these areas about the presence of what the dog did and what the dog showed, which, by the way, was confirmed because they found the drugs in the vehicle. Yeah, they did. That kind of, I refer to it as, uh, you know, I mean, it's judicial activism, some describe it. I think of it more in terms of our juristocracy. But I'll tell you something, Roy. I've talked to a whole lot of cops out west about this a particular case. Absolutely undermines morale of police officers. How can it not? Is the point of us doing the job? How can it not? It also erodes the public confidence in our justice system. This kind of activity, in my opinion, needs to be confronted or things are going to get worse. Hold on, Scott. We're going to take a break and then when we come back, Scott Newark is going to have a look at the law, the legislation that uh, surrounds the right or opportunity of the former Attorney General, uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould, having the right to speak her truth. We'll talk to Scott about that in just a minute. We will, in about 15 minutes, be speaking with Lisa Raitt, the deputy leader of the Conservative Party and a member of that Justice Committee. Now, Scott Newark is with us, former Crown Attorney, and... uh, um, senior policy advisor to a federal minister for public safety. So, what's the what's the what's the what's the law say about what the former attorney general may or may not say in these circumstances, Scott? Um, there, uh, what has been invoked is uh, two um, 
basically uh, uh, rules. One is of parliamentary tradition, which is that cabinet ministers are bound by what are known as cabinet confidences, and they're not allowed to discuss uh, what has been uh, discussed by cabinet, including uh, different uh, members, not necessarily at a formalized cabinet meeting, um, which, you know, frankly, if you watch TV and you see, uh, you know, politicians uh, jabbering away, not saying anything, is often used as cover for them. The other is a just a basic legal uh, privilege, is known as solicitor-client privilege, where um, if I'm acting for you as a lawyer and you tell me something, I can't just reveal that without your consent. Um, this one gets really fuzzy, though, because it's she is claiming uh, that uh, because she was the attorney general, she is in effect counsel to the government of Canada, and so any of the communications that she may have been part of as a as a part of that process, she would not be able to speak about them um, unless the client, which is the government of Canada, which is you know presumably reflected by uh, the prime minister or even the guy that was the clerk of the Privy Council, who you know was pretty blunt when he testified last week, um, and actually went so far as to say that he, as far as he's concerned, she uh, can say whatever she wants. And an exception to that occurs when the client starts talking about the issues in public, which, let's face it, the Prime Minister certainly has done on multiple occasions. So it's also ridiculous that the, uh, the new Attorney General with, you know, the 1,000 lawyers at the Department of Justice, what are they, like into week three in trying to figure out uh, whether or not uh, she is allowed to speak? As yeah, no politics involved at all. And they can't, you know, figure out what uh, the legal advice should be? No, I mean, I, I, and I fully expect that we will hear, uh, or we may hear, uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould's truth on Tuesday. And if she could tell it on Tuesday, that door should have been open for her. Or And she has, a, as her own counsel, she has a former Supreme yeah. Court of Canada justice. I, that door uh, should have been open before. I don't know. I mean, I think there's an awful lot more going on behind the scenes here. Uh, Sober hearing. Including about um, how it was and why it was that she got punished uh, by being uh, demoted. Well, you know, I, I spoke with Duff Conacher yesterday from yeah. D- Democracy Watch, uh, yeah. and, and he pointed out, he said, once the, uh, once the, uh, the federal um, prosecutors have said they're going to go ahead and prosecute, and then the attorney general decides not to intervene to allow the prosecution to go forward, at that point, the prime minister has no business and no right to get involved. I think he's wrong. Yeah. Yeah, I do, actually, because the purpose of what the communications are for um, is a legitimate purpose. It wasn't that they were trying to get her to change her actions well, because they'd been bribed or because... And, in fact, think about this for a second. The process that they wanted her to consider was actually a legal process that was a change made to the criminal code. Yeah, it was made after some tremendous lobbying by the, no, by but, SNC. But, you, know, well, you and I talk almost every week about individual... Oh, I know, but then it, and it was part of an omnibus bill. Where, where people, you know, come forward and, and try to make changes. And personally, I can, I can see real value, especially for something that uh, happened over in uh, Libya, as opposed to here. But the point of it is, is that the minister under the... Director of Public Prosecutions Act, which the previous government made independent, under Section 15, the minister, the attorney general, has the right to take over the prosecution. Okay? Now, she said no, 
the director of public prosecution. So you're saying at that point, at that point, only 30 seconds here, you're saying at that point the prime minister still has the right to get involved, then we have, we have the right to know what that involvement was, yes, and not just that it was vigorous discussion. Correct. And I think What's that's the content the of the discussion? I think where you'll see this play out is with the... Uh, uh, the ethics commissioner, because it may be there, that there needs to be... Yeah, well, there's a problem with the ethics commissioner as well, because the ethics commissioner was appointed by the prime minister and the cabinet without the participation of the opposition parties, yes. and the Canada Parliament Act requires that. Uh, yes, and uh, he uh, changed. He didn't follow the recommendation made, a rec- request made by the NDP. He created his own investigation, which means there is less disclosure. Okay. And let's just say he doesn't exactly have a history of independence. Good talking to you, my friend. All the best. Scott Newark on The Roy Green Show. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.